Well, we've been going through a sermon series about the glory of the gospel because that's really what I've wanted to leave you with. I, I hope in four years there's several contributions that I've hoped to make by God's grace. But chief among them is to expand your view of the gospel, to, to, to invite you to see the vastness of what God has done for us, that, that the gospel is so much bigger than we often allow it to be. And so we've tried to look at in these last number of weeks that the, uh, the idea that we are a new covenant people. Uh, we're not under the old covenant, so let's not put ourselves under the old covenant. The, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. It, it has been achieved. It has been set aside. It no longer is a weight that is to be put on our shoulders. Therefore, do not put yourselves or others under the buckling weight of the old covenant. You cannot and you ought not make any effort to earn your place in God's kingdom. It is a position that is given to us entirely by God's grace as a gift. That is the narrow gate. The narrowness of the gospel is that you cannot earn this. You cannot achieve this for yourself. It has to be received as a gift. It has to be received as little children ask for things from their parents, not, not thinking about how they can even say thank you or, or pay them back, but just give me what you have as a gift. We're new covenant people saved by grace through faith. Secondly, we've been given a new heart. We are people who have been made new. We have a new nature, and that new nature is holy. And therefore, victory in the Christian life, according to the gospel, is to live from the inside out. It's not to try to conform ourselves anymore to some exterior standard. Uh, if you've been saved, if you've been born again in Christ, you have a new heart. Holiness is your nature. Now, we still carry around the flesh. We still have this proclivity to sin, but that's not the true us anymore. That's not, the, that's not the core of who we are. If you drill down to the center of a Christian, the Christian loves righteousness. The Christian is holy. So remind yourself every day that your core identity is no longer sinner. Uh, throw away the, the tag that I'm a sinner saved by grace. There's some truth to that under the doctrine of justification, but more true is that you are a saint. You are by nature holy. So then live a holy life because that's who you are. Submit your members, your bodies, your lives for righteousness sake because that's your true desire. Third part of this gospel that has been so crucial to us as a church is that we will be given a new body. This new body has continuity with the bodies that we have right now. The body that you put in the ground or we put in the ground for each one of us will be raised imperishable. There's continuity. But its newness is a qualitative newness. That there's substance added, glory added. Glory, in Hebrew, the word is weightiness, heaviness. God is going to glorify. He's going to make heavy these ethereal bodies that we're in now, they're not ethereal to us, but they will be by comparison with the resurrected glorious body that we're going to get. It's super physical. So do not settle for any lesser gospel than the promise of resurrection from the dead. Super physical resurrection from the dead. And share this profound promise with the world. You see, this is, this is news we're sharing. We're going to conquer death. Our bodies are going to be raised 
from the grave. Fourth, we're going to live forever with God in a new world. We don't, we don't escape these bodies or this world. God is going to raise up the universe that He created and said it is very good and we destroyed it. We ruined it with our sin but God is going to glorify it and that's going to be our eternal dwelling place and the dwelling place of God will be with us in this creation. Therefore do not love the world as it is right now or the things in the world, for, for this world as it is, weighted down, groaning under the, under the weight of the curse, is passing away along with all of its desires. But those who do the will of God and long for His coming will abide forever in a universe where the curse is lifted and where God comes in His fullness. And we step into that unapproachable light and we dwell with Him, and we see His face. That's what we've covered so far. Today, what I want us to look at is that we have a new king. Uh, we've all been serving lesser kings uh, before we were saved. Uh, that is the whole tragedy of the human race, is that we, we elevated ourselves to the position of king. But the gospel says, no, put God back on the throne. Uh, put God in the person of Jesus Christ on the throne of your life and then wait for Him to come and to actually sit on a throne in the new Jerusalem to reign over every tongue and tribe and language and people and nation. So pledge your daily allegiance to no other king but to King Jesus. Make Him the Lord of your life and, and live backward from the reality that every one of us has an appointment that we will not be late for and that appointment is the day that we will meet Jesus Christ face to face. He has already set the, the day and the hour. It is for sure, it's a surety that you will meet the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see His resurrected glory and I want you to be ready for that day. And, and I think I've said this before, but that's what drives my ministry. My ministry is fueled by the desire to prepare everyone that, that God has entrusted to my care to prepare them for that day. And if, I, if that means I have to ruffle some feathers or offend some people in so doing, I'm willing to do that in love so that you're ready to meet the King. So that, so that you're ready to meet Jesus. And that means that I push and I push and I push. And I, and I hope that as we've come to the end of these four years together, that, that you could see that my pushing is a, a, a love push. It's a pushing in love so that you are ready. That you've not missed any opportunities to prepare for that day when you will see Jesus. And so I want to end our time by reading the last words in the Bible. If you would open to Revelation 22, I'm going to read verse 6 through 21. Because these verses are about the return of the king. As you're looking for your place, would you please stand? I want you to be ready for the day that Jesus comes back and raises your dead body from the grave or transforms your living body if you're still alive. Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. This is the Word of God. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. 
And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm but a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The Word of God. Oh God, I pray that we would heed the words written here and we'd be ready. And we would say, come Lord Jesus, amen, come. Help me to preach. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What I want to do for our last time together here is to go through the last words of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And... These words that Jesus says at the very last part of of the Bible are the words that Jesus wants to leave us with, and so I want to leave them with you. And and there are nine statements that Jesus makes, and so the structure for today is, is really simple. We're going to go through the nine final statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. First one is in Revelation 22, 7, and Jesus says, I am coming soon. Uh, This book was written in the 90s of the first century, so it's been uh, over 1,900 years since Jesus said, I'm coming soon. And we might say, it doesn't seem, Jesus, like you're coming soon. It seems like a long time, actually, and a lot has happened in the last 2,000 years. And we may begin to wonder, is Jesus even coming at all, let alone coming soon? 
We're reminded in 2 Peter 3 that Peter said, there's going to be scoffers who say that Jesus is not coming back. They say there is no final judgment. Jesus said he was coming soon and he's delayed. But then Peter puts it in perspective for us. He says, well, what is soon anyway? Like for God, a, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And so we have to keep this in perspective, right? What, what does it mean for Jesus to come soon? Well, I think one thing that we can say after 2,000 years is that if this is soon, then Jesus is thinking and speaking with a timeline that is expansive. That puts our lives in perspective. If for Jesus, 2,000 years is soon, maybe 3,000, maybe 4,000 is soon, it means that he has a big vision of the future. If 2,000 years is soon, then we have tens and hundreds and millions of thousands and billions of whatever number you want to put on it, infinite zeros of time. So comparative to infinite time, uh, a never-ending future, Jesus is coming soon whenever he does come. And so, so we w don't want to get so short-sighted, right? To, to, to think that the next 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, or if you're a youth, you might think, oh, I might have 80 years ahead of me. To trade in the, the infinite glory of an eternal future to maximize 10 or 20 or 40 or 80 years is foolishness. We want to think about time the way God thinks about it. Our, our lives are like a mist or a vapor, and, and they're, they're just a blink of the eye in God's timetable. And therefore, we want to, we want to uh, invest our lives extremely uh, well for the sake of the eternity that awaits us. Jesus says that he's coming soon in this passage three times. Do you think he wants us to get the point? In this verse, 22-7, in verse 12, and then again at the very end in verse 20, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Well, so, so this seems really important to Jesus. Why does Jesus want us to know that he is coming soon? I think we've said some of it already that it, it gives us perspective on how God keeps time. But, but for us, there's three things that I want to impress upon us with this. Number one, any suffering in this life is temporary. Jesus is coming back. And He's coming soon. We're going to suffer in this life. There's heartache in this life. But it is temporary suffering. The other side of that coin is that any worldly comforts that we might secure for ourselves, any worldly comforts that we might enjoy, they also are temporary. Make for yourself the, the greatest life with the, the most lavish riches. Pursue the, the greatest path to health and vitality and physical well-being, and that too is going to be taken away in the blink of an eye. Therefore, our lives must not be organized around what we can avoid, that is suffering, or what we can gain, that is worldly comforts. It must be organized around the great truth that Jesus is coming back. And therefore, the third thing that I want us to know, when Jesus says, I am coming soon, I am coming soon, surely I am coming soon, he wants us then to live our lives with urgency, that the imminent return of Christ ought to be the thing that propels our lives forward, that we want to do all that we can today 
for Jesus. Today, not, not in a year, not in five years, not in ten years, not in 40 years, but today because he might come back today. Urgency. It's not an idea that the Canadian church is very familiar with because tomorrow will be like today until it's not. And so we want to live our lives urgently, investing our lives for the cause of Christ so that when He comes back, He sees us toiling for His kingdom. He sees us busying ourselves for His glory so that when He comes back, He can say, oh, that is precisely what I wanted you to be doing upon my return. Coming soon, He says. Second thing that Jesus says is in verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus is coming back. And according to, to verse 7, when Jesus comes, He is coming with blessing. And He's coming with blessing that, that, that we cannot even wrap our minds around. Uh, there, there's no human language. There are no thoughts that we are capable of to understand that when He comes, He comes as a bridegroom to, to, to marry His bride. And, and there's, every one of our weddings, if we are married or will be married or have been married, is but a foreshadowing of this. Uh, that is usually the high point of so many people's lives. Uh, the day that they got married, uh, that is just a taste of the blessing that comes when our bridegroom comes with us and we are caught up in an ecstatic joy to be united in a way with Christ that we have not yet experienced. And because Jesus is fully God, by marriage to Jesus, we are, we are enveloped in the fellowship, the eternal fellowship, and the joy of the love, and, and whatever it is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed with one another forever. You see, we are grafted into the Godhead to enjoy the very life and experience that God has enjoyed with God from the beginning. That's awesome. That is unfathomable. We will never understand what that is like until it happens. What is it like for the Father to love the Son and the Son to love the Father, to be united by the love of the Spirit? We, we, we know in part, but only in part, but we will, be, we will be swallowed up by God Himself at that moment. And He brings with Him our full inheritance. What is our inheritance? Everything that God has to give to God, God is giving to us. Everything that God the Father delights to give to God the Son, God the Son says, bride, come and have it with me because what's mine is yours. One flash. It's a big promise. He comes with blessing. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. But the blessing is only for those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. What book? Well, I think directly he's saying the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation is the last installment of a greater book, the Bible. It's for those who treasure the Word of God. What does it mean to keep the words of this book or the words of the prophecy of this book? It's, it's to say that this book, Revelation, but more than Revelation, Genesis, all the way through Revelation, is the Word of God. The prophecy of the Word of God. These are the words of God given to us. And those who cherish these words will receive the promised inheritance, will receive the blessing, will be a part of the bride of Christ. Which means 
The greatest goal of any human life is to read and to know and to love and to cherish and to live and to teach this book. There's no higher end in any human life. What is the goal of your life? Well, let me give you a goal that is above every other goal. Get to know this book. Love this book. And teach this book. Live this book. Because those who do that will receive the blessing of God when Christ comes. Third thing that Jesus says, I am coming soon. The structure here is, I am coming soon, and when I come, there's going to be blessing. I'm coming soon. So we're reminded a second time that any suffering in this life is temporary. Emotional suffering, physical suffering, relational suffering, the suffering of the cosmos Every kind of suffering is temporary. Every comfort is fleeting. And therefore, we live with urgency, organizing our life around the return of Christ. Then we move on to the fourth thing that Jesus says. If the second thing after He told us He was coming uh, was that He's coming with blessing, then He says, I'm coming soon. And then the fourth thing He says, in addition to blessing, I am bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what He has done. Recompense. What is recompense? It's a repayment. I'm going, to, I'm going to judge the world. I will pay back justly to everyone what they have done. So in verse 7, He brings blessing. In verse 12, Jesus says He brings recompense. Blessing and recompense. Blessing for those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Therefore, the recompense that we get, this is the amazing deal for us. What does it mean for Jesus to pay back those who are already under His blessing, where there is no condemnation? It means that He will burn away all of our sin and all the futile moments that we wasted. And then He will give us treasure and added blessing for the good works that we did by His grace for His glory. Zero punishment for sin and zero uh, punishment for wasted time. All of that gets burned up as if it never happened. But reward for all that we did to His glory. That's the recompense that we get if we fall under His blessing. But there is a recompense for those who have not loved the words of the prophecy of this book. Who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will have to give an account for their lives and all will be revealed. And those who have not loved the Lord Jesus Christ or the Word of God will face only a judgment of works that ends in condemnation. What is the judgment of works that is promised to the world? Every thought? Every feeling? Every 
word, every hidden motive, every action will be exposed and laid bare before the judgment seat of God. And He will show everyone this is your life in total. And God will find every person guilty and worthy of eternal condemnation. And He will judge them and He will condemn them. And He will say, depart from Me for I never knew you. And they will go to the outer darkness to the place of the unquenchable fire where the worm never dies, where there is weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Only those who claim the perfect works of Jesus as their own will be saved. This is part of the Gospel and we dare not ignore it. This is the great warning to all of us and to the world. The fifth statement of Jesus is connected with this judgment of recompense. I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says in verse 13. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. In its immediate context, Jesus is tying this to what he has just said about recompense. In case anyone thinks that anything will escape the notice of our judge, Jesus Jesus affirms that he is all-knowing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Nothing has happened from the beginning until the end that I, Jesus, am unaware of. I know it all. I know the secret thoughts of your hearts. I know everything you've done in private. I know every secret thing. I know it all. Nothing has happened that I do not know about. And I will consider all of it. I will weigh all of it in the balance at the final judgment. So this is a warning for the world. And it's even a warning for so-called Christians or would-be Christians, those who say that we claim Christ. Be sure that you do. Because He's the Alpha and the Omega. We, our lives are but a blink of His eye. And He's always been and He always will be. This statement is also an affirmation of Jesus' divinity and His oneness with the Father. In Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7, God, the God of the Old Testament, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. For Jesus to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is to declare Himself to be Isaiah's God. So so this man who is going to return to judge us, he he is a man, but he's no mere mortal. He he is is God in human form. It is God who judges in the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation itself, in Revelation 1, verse 8, God the Father has said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then in Revelation 21, verse 6, God the Father has said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then at the very end, Jesus, as if there's, if there's been any doubt as you've been reading through the Bible, I'm not sure who, I, who Jesus is. He takes away all doubt at the end. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am God. And we're reminded of Jude, verse 5, where we're told that Jesus delivered for Himself a people out of slavery in Egypt. It's Jesus who is the God of the Old Testament that saved 
Hebrew slaves and made them into a nation so that He might be born to that nation, their God who came to reign as their King. So with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And and just as a little sidebar, I I want you to, to really think on that. That truth alone should open up the Old Testament for us. If we know nothing else about the Old Testament, when you're reading about God in the Old Testament, you're reading about Jesus. You're reading about your bridegroom. You're reading about your Savior. You're reading about your King. You're reading about your, your, your New Testament Son of God. He is the God of the Old Testament. In fact, John 12 says that when Isaiah beheld uh, the Lord God high and exalted, lifted up in the temple, and his, his robe filled the temple, John says that Isaiah was beholding the pre-incarnate Christ. So when God speaks in the Old Testament, it is the Lord Jesus Christ with the Father and the Spirit who is speaking Get to know Jesus by reading the Old Testament. Looking for types and shadows and prophecies, yes. But more than that, the person of God in the Old Testament is the person of Jesus Christ. Because God and Christ are one and the same. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The sixth statement that Jesus makes here is in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. For the churches. Do you know when Jesus uttered that, he was thinking of South Shore Bible Church. Not only us, but including us. And he had the capacity to see us and to know us even then. I'm writing you these things. I'm declaring these things. I've sent my angel to you so that you would write this down because I know South Shore Bible Church and I love South Shore Bible Church. I know every one of the members name by name, family by family. I know all of their thoughts and all of their feelings and all of their motives and all of their actions and I love them and I cover them with my blood. And so I declare these things for them, for the churches. And what Jesus wants His church so sure to know is that He is God. Who can send angels but God? The head of the church is the creator of the universe. No pastor, no elder, no pope. God made man. Jesus, who sends angels to do His bidding. And only God can send angels to do His bidding. We also see here the authority of this book. What book? Revelation and the Bible. I have sent my angel to testify of these things. This book, this is my testimony. These are my words. And I want my churches to be built on these words, I want their roots to go deep into these words. Because the angel bears witness to the truth of the Word of God as the authority of Christ. The seventh thing that Jesus says is in verse 16. 
I am the root and the descendant of David. The root and the descendant of David. We know that, that Jesus is the Davidic king. He, he is the son of David according to his earthly human lineage. According to the, 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 the human family tree, David came first, and then Jesus is his descendant. But Jesus is also the root of David. In Isaiah, the, uh, the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of 11, we have this imagery of God chopping down a forest of trees. And one of the trees that he chops down is, is the tree of Israel. And that tree of Israel is also called the, the tree of Jesse. Jesse being the father of King David. He chops down the Davidic monarchy. But there is a promise in 11.1, Isaiah 11.1, that God's not done with David's kingdom. And there will be a, a shoot, a branch that comes up from the chopped down tree. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I, I am the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. I am the king that will sit on David's throne. And everything promised to David is really promised to me. I'm the fulfillment of all of that. But the root, in verse 10 of Isaiah 11, you get the root. This branch that comes up from from the chopped down stump is the root. It's the source of David's kingship. The, the descendant of David is David's creator. The source of David's life. The source of David's authority and sovereignty. It, it, it's the root that supports the tree. David does not support the son of David. The son of David is the reason for David in the first place. Jesus is the source of David's kingship. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's kingship. David's greatness, therefore, is limited to his role in expressing the divine kingship of God through Jesus Christ. God used David as the, the lineage or the family through which God would enter the human drama as a man. That's what makes David great. David was a sinner like everyone else. But what, David was a man after God's own heart. What does it mean that David was great? God chose David to be the, the family through which and the dynasty through which God Himself would enter the human drama as a man. And so the greatness of David is a derivative greatness. The greatness belongs to Christ. This is an amazing aspect of the gospel. And I want, I want you to just, I'm going to say this slowly so it can sink in. This is the gospel. That God decided, before He said, let there be light, this was God's plan, to become the human king of the human race. That's the gospel. Before God says we could do whatever we want to do. We could make whatever we want to make. What do we want to do? What do we want to make? Let's make a race of creatures and become one of them so that we can reign over them. Oh, that's good, said God to God. That's really good. How are we going to do that? The Bible. That's the Gospel. That's the greatness of David. God said, well, we're going to need a family. And 
We're going to make that family great, but that family's not going to be great because of that family. That family's going to be great because we're going to choose that family as unworthy as they are to be the means through which we will reign as one of them over them. God did not become the angelic king of the angelic race. He became the human king of the human race. God became a man to rule over men. And so this, this is the amazing thing about it, and it blows your mind if you think on it. Let, and let's not miss this. In Jesus Christ, God is a man. God is a man. In Jesus Christ. And as a man, God died for sinners. Now why would God do that? Because He wanted to show that no one was worthy to have God as their king. Therefore, He allowed us to corrupt ourselves so that He could save us. But if He didn't save us, He couldn't be king over us. He would have to come and rule over us by destroying us. And so our great King becomes one of us and dies in our place, purchasing us for His kingdom so that He could reign over us as one of us. It's awesome. God died for sinners as a man so that as a man God might reign over saints. Let the gospel be that big that you spend weeks and months and years thinking about what I've just said. It's awesome. And God chose Israel to be his entry point to the human race, and within it, Israel, Judah, and within Judah, David. That's what makes Israel great. That's what makes Judah great. That's what makes David great. That and nothing else. Eighth thing that Jesus says is in verse 16. I am the bright morning star. What does this mean? Well, Jesus is making the exact same point that he's made in when he said, I am the root and the descendant of David, except Jesus has a score to settle. In Numbers chapter 24, uh, Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel because he was afraid of Israel. They were, you know, some two million strong, and Balak, the king of Moab, was scared, and so he hired Balaam to curse him. Balaam couldn't. God wouldn't let him curse him. And in fact, in his third attempt to curse him, Balaam blessed Israel, and he said, a star will come out of Israel, and he has the scepter. That is, there's going to be a king that comes out of Israel, and the prophecy was that the king of the world is coming from these people you're trying to curse. So it's the same point that, that the king comes from Israel. But more than that, Satan has tried to co-opt this prophecy that Balaam made. In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, calls himself the bright morning star, the day star, the star of the dawn. And behind Nebuchadnezzar's claim, that's the king of Babylon, uh, most commentators would agree that it's actually Satan boasting through the king of Babylon. You know, you have sort of like a God the Father and Nebuchadnezzar being sort of the counterfeit son of God. 
And Satan is boasting, you know that prophecy about, about this great ruler? That's me, uh, Satan saying of himself. And, and my, my, my king is the king of Babylon, and we're going to rule the world. And Jesus just lets it go from 586 B.C., lets it go, lets it go. And then at the very end of the Bible, he says, I can't let that go. Satan's not the, the, the star of the dawn. He's not the, the bright morning star. I am. I am. Everyone else is counterfeit. Satan is a counterfeit king. He is not your king. Don't bow to him. I love it. I lo it's just so cheeky to hold that back until the end. And he just stomps on Satan one last time. I am the bright morning star. Me and no other. Jesus is making the point that Balaam made. The king of the Jews is the king of the world. So when Pilate put over the cross the king of the Jews, and that's why Jesus was crucified, and the Pharisees wanted him to take it down, the Sadducees wanted him to take it down, and Pilate says, no, what I've written, I've written. God was using even Pilate to declare this is the king of the Jews, and by his cross he has become the king of the of every nation, the king of the human race, because that's the gospel. That was God's good intention from before, let there be light. The ninth statement that Jesus makes, the last thing that Jesus says to us, and let's be honest, the, the, the last thing that Jesus says has the weightiest significance of anything that Jesus could have said. What does he want to leave us with? Surely I am coming soon. The return of Jesus Christ is certain. He's coming. Maybe in our lifetime. Maybe today. So any suffering that we're going through or will go through, and either we are or we will, it's temporary. Any comforts or riches that we can accumulate for ourselves in this world, they are fleeting. Do not put your hope in this world. Jesus Christ is coming soon. Therefore, we need to urgently be seeking to serve Him and to glorify Him. Don't put off to tomorrow what you can do today. Organize your life around this truth. Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when Jesus comes, He will judge with all the authority of God as one who knows everything from beginning to end with all the authority of the rightful King of the human race. We are going to be judged by one of our peers. A man will judge men. By men I mean human beings, men and women. It is the supreme human person who is our judge. The supreme human being, the King of all kings and the Lord of all, all lords. He is our God. He is our brother in that He is one of us and He will judge us. And no one is greater than He is. And there is no greater court to appeal to. When He issues His judgment on you, it is final and irrevocable. Be ready for that day. At that day, there are no more good works that you can do that will count in the judgment. Remember, He is coming to give recompense 
to repay everyone what they have done. For those of us who are saved, it's all blessing. All of, all of the curses consumed on the cross and all of our sin and wasted moments are burned up by God's grace. But there's still treasure to be had. And Jesus commands us, store up riches in heaven. Work for an eternal prize. Make your life count. He will bless those who keep the word of God and He will condemn those who do not keep the word according to their works. But the judgment is not binary, in or out. Greater judgment against those who have sinned in greater measure and greater treasure. Whatever that means. For those who have given themselves maximally for the cause of Christ. Now to be certain, the least in the kingdom is full and overflowing. The image that I like to think of it is, is God will give us each a different size chalice. So some will be small cups, right? Some will be larger, but they'll all be full and overflowing. But Jesus exhorts us, work for the greater inheritance. Don't earn it, but work in the grace of God. It's a different sermon that someone else will have to preach to you. And so the Bible ends. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. My prayer for you is that you will hold firm to the glory of the gospel. Allow the gospel to get bigger every day of your life, not smaller. Do not walk on a tightrope of orthodoxy where you're afraid that you might fall to one side or the other, but splash around in the great sea, the great stream. Stay within the banks for certain, but enjoy the gospel. The narrow path that, that we're exhorted to find is the doorway. And once you enter the narrow door, which is that you're saved by grace through faith according to God's mercy in your life, you go through that crack, that narrow, narrow door, and you find the vastness of God's love. Live in that vastness. Remind yourselves daily that we are new covenant people, no longer constrained and buckled under the weight of the old covenant. Do not submit yourself to that and do not submit others to that because it's a life of drudgery. It's a works-based gospel that condemns. Know that your core identity is holy because you've been given a new heart. Live from your heart. And by that I mean don't do whatever your flesh wants you to do, but do the very holy thing that your holy heart desires to do and take mastery over yourselves from the inside out. Look forward to your resurrected body. When your body is getting old and getting tired and getting sick and breaking down, don't lose hope. But know that if we put your body in the ground, Jesus will raise it from that very spot. And you will live forever in glorious superphysicality. 
be ready to live forever with God in a new world, a world that we cannot conceive of because everything that we have seen to this date, no matter how beautiful, is way, uh, groaning under the weight of God's curse. That's, so, that's, that's just who God is. Even His curse is beautiful. As much as there's much to groan about, there's much beauty in even the beauty in the world in which we live now is an expression of God's curse. And always set your sights on Jesus Christ, your new and greater King. Step off the throne of your life. Put Jesus at his rightful place as the King of your life. Organize your life around his Lordship and live for him. For those who seek their own life will lose it. But those who lose themselves for the sake of Jesus Christ our King and deny themselves for the sake of His glory, they will find their lives and you will not be disappointed because that which God wants to give you is so much more than you could claim for yourself. So lose yourself for Christ's sake and find so much more than you ever hoped for or could ever imagine. Our gospel is glorious. Never settle for a small gospel. A new covenant, a new heart, a new body, a new world, and a new king. Of all the things I've hoped to impart to you over these last four years, I think this is, this is it. This is what I want for you. I want, I want us and I want you to be gospel people. Deeply so. If I could summarize this final sermon series, if I could summarize my heart for you as your pastor for four years, I would take you to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to end with this. After I read this, we're going to pray. And then we're going to actually watch a video. It's just a song, but it's a song that I want, I want you to prayerfully invite God to help you to bask in the words of this song. And ask God, and this will be my prayer for you, that these words become true for you. Not, not just Christian true, but true. Not just churchy true, but true. Like this is your heartbeat. This is, this is your life. This is, this is why you live and breathe. But first, the Word of God. These are the words, not my words, God's words that I want to be my last words to you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. God, thank You for this promise of the Gospel. Make it true for each one of us. In Your name I pray.